0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear a local woman tell of being a pioneer in the sport of skydiving, as interviewed by her neighbor for StoryCorps. Meet the filmmaker behind Double Digits, a new documentary about one man's love of creating epic films in his backyard. Visit St. Cecilia, a new music studio in downtown Tucson. And the stairwell session features the soulful poetry of songwriter Carlos Arzate. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is "listening is an act of love." Since 2003, thousands of people from around the world have had the opportunity to record their stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. A team from StoryCorps is in Tucson now, and next we'll hear Katie Estrella interview her neighbor T. Taylor, a woman who has lived a life of many adventures.
1: My name is Katie Estrella. I'm 67 years old, and I am with my friend, T. Taylor.
2: My name is T. Taylor. I am 74 years old, and um, I am with Katie, and she is my friend, acquaintance, from the dog park.
1: And it turns out that you are a world-famous sky diver. Is that the correct <laughs> room? Sky diver. Uh-huh. Right. And um, maybe we should begin there, and then later we'll get back to the dogs. Okay. (laughs) I think I heard somewhere that uh, it was your father who first mentioned skydiving. I was about 16 years old, and my father had
2: read something in in a men's magazine about a new sport in California where they uh, would, would jump out of airplanes and do acrobatic things in the air before they would open their parachute. Didn't that sound interesting to me? And I said,
1: yeah, it does. Well, what was it about your father that made him so different from most fathers who would want to protect their daughters from doing anything dangerous? What was it about him?
2: Well, I think it wasn't what was about him. It was about what his children were, and he had four daughters, and I was the oldest boy. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you were his substitute boy yeah, that's it oh I see and what about your mom was she was she worried about you no. how old were you when you first had that conversation with him I was
2: 16 mm-hmm. but I didn't make a jump until I was 19
1: and what happened then
2: um nothing I went out and made a jump <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even tell him I was going
1: oh I see was uh-huh. that Before, I think I heard a story about some landings at the university that you found out about.
2: That's it. There was an article in the newspaper, and um, three guys had made an illegal jump out of an airplane and landed on the campus. Oh, it was just a big uproar. This was uh, 59 or 60, and... uh, I took the names of some of the people in the article and found them in the in the telephone book. We had telephone books for people back then. And um, called them and said, I'd like to make a parachute jump. And they told me where the, the training class was going to be. And I went there on a Friday night for a couple of hours. And then on Saturday morning, I went out to uh, a dirt road where they landed with the airplane. They put me out on a static line jump from this airplane and I landed in a plowed field next to the road.
1: Oh wait, I don't understand what is a static line jump.
2: Static line is where the parachute is opened automatically from the airplane. They instead of having a rip cord, you have a a line that is attached through the pins in your parachute, but it's attached to the airplane so that when you jump out, it um, it, it pulls the the pins like a ripcord would. It's the same way military people jump from an airplane.
1: But how far up in the air are you at that point? Or oh, were you?
2: About 3,000 feet above the ground. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's not so far. <laughs> that's not so
1: far. <laughs> were you at all afraid?
2: Um the first time, I was just so, you know, it, it was happening so fast and all that I didn't have time to be afraid. After that, for about 25 jumps, I was kind of afraid, and I, I would get in the airplane, and I'd go, why am I doing this? I, after this jump, I'm not going to jump anymore, and I'd be so excited, I could hardly wait to get back in the air.
1: Were there any other girls along with you?
2: No. No, this was at the very beginning of of sport parachuting. There were not even places where you could buy parachutes when we started. It was all surplus military.
1: But you were in competitions in Europe very quickly, weren't you? Within
2: two years, I'm really pretty lucky because I've always been pretty coordinated, and skydiving came very easy for me. I never was out of control in the air, and so I started being good at there were only two aspects at the time, and one was um, uh, accuracy, hitting a target while you're under the canopy, and style, which is the speed and accuracy of a set of maneuvers you do while you're in freefall, And that came fairly easy to me. That allowed me to be on the team in 1964, and the team went to Leutkirk, Germany, for the World Meet.
1: Had you ever been abroad before that? No. <laughs> no. Wasn't that pretty amazing? That was a wonderful
0: adventure. T. Taylor was interviewed by Katie Estrella in the StoryCorps booth at the Reed Park Zoo in Tucson. More local StoryCorps stories are available at azpm.org. We are receiving instructions. We'll be going by sub to
3: the Kaiser Island. If you're standing there, you better draw your gun, and I mean draw your gun now.
0: Trying to describe the independent films of Richard R.G. Miller doesn't do them justice. They need to be seen to be believed. From actions to westerns to science fiction, he's been single-handedly writing, producing, directing, and acting in backyard epics from his home in Wichita, Kansas, for more than three decades. Although each project can take months to complete, Miller modestly admits that if a film gets more than 10 online views, he considers it a success. That statement provided the title for the just-released documentary, Double Digits, The Story of a Neighborhood Movie Star. I talked with the maker of that film, Justin Johnson, about the cinematic magic of R.G. Miller.
4: Well, he calls them internet art films, and I think that's just the perfect term for what he makes. He has these big, fantastical, like, $100 million ideas that really should be impossible to do, and through this strange process that he puts his films through, he is able to get the vision across to the viewer
0: in a way that's just absolutely hypnotic, and you just have to see it. And as you described, there is a lot of video art that goes on to creating the sets and the backgrounds and the props, but uh, what about the acting in these films?
4: Well, there's really only one actor, and that's R.G. himself. Sometimes there's cameos, but really it's just the vision of one guy. So if it's not him, it's gonna be one of his dolls or action figures. He's got all these crazy toys that he spray painted and he uses them as as his actors in these scenes. So that's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see R.G. sometimes talking to himself in split screen, and then these little toys but when you see it, you just, you never forget it because it's captivating.
0: It's distinctly cinematic.
4: It is very, for, for for the way he pulls these things off, like it is very, his mind is a director's mind for sure.
0: I was wondering, looking at some shots, like one that comes to mind where uh, a car pulls out of a junkyard at high speed and turns a corner and it's done with a, well, what I guess I would call a car marionette. It's yeah. a car suspended from strings on a tiny hand-built stage replicating a junkyard. And you have to think to yourself, wouldn't it have been easier to drive a real car around a real corner and film it?
4: RG's sort of a a hermit. He's like a hermit artist. And so for him to leave the confines of his tiny quote-unquote studio apartment or his side yard would take beyond the effort that he usually puts into location scouting he's been making movies with this particular style for like 35 years so he's very comfortable building these tiny worlds more so comfortable than actually going out into the world and doing it also he doesn't have a driver's license
0: so that may present an issue for the for the car scene so it's ironic that for him it's actually easier to build a a matchbox world and inhabit it with complicated special effects than it is to interact with the real world.
4: Absolutely, and, and, and I think it just gives him more control over his vision. Every director, now with the advent of CG, directors are able to exercise a really incredible amount of control. It's the same for RG, like he loves the control of the world, and for him I think that's what really drives him to do films as he does them.
0: In your movie, you do a lot of interviews with people who know him, friends and family, and uh, there's a lot of smiles in the movie. Most people, when you ask them about R.G.'s movies, their faces light up in a way that I think would make Disney or Hitchcock or Steven Spielberg happy if they were to get the same reaction. He seems like a really happy guy. He's very upbeat. Did you ever see that side of his personality tested in the time that you were working with him?
4: Absolutely. And he gets frustrated throughout the process of making these things because it being a one man band sort of project, there are plenty of things that can go wrong. For example, one scene in the film takes place of him filming underneath a bridge, this very bleak bridge, and there are literally 50 mile an hour wind gusts threatening to like blast his tripod over. And there's no one manning that camera. That tripod is sitting there by itself as he wanders off 50 feet into a ditch in his superhero costume. That's an example of going out into the world and shooting where it presents a lot of difficulties. So he certainly gets frustrated. But one thing that I really learned from him is that he treats that frustration as sort of a sign from the gods that he's on the right track. That's one of my favorite quotes in the film. And that's one thing that really inspired me to continue working on it. It's that kind of attitude that keeps him young and keeps that childlike spirit for him as a creator.
0: Is there a key moment you think when you were doing research or talking to him about his background, when you think this creativity sparked?
4: Absolutely. When R.G. was in school, in high school, there was another student who gave him a book on filmmaking. And he really had no idea that you could even make your own films. I mean, he started when he was 14 or 15 years old. And this is a very isolated, you know, urban part of Wichita. And so he's from the African-American community. I don't think he had a lot of filmmaking peers in his group. And so when he discovered he could buy a camera and make his own movies at a young age, suddenly this just became his entire life. This is such an inspirational story for really any creative person who's ever had a dream. And it really moves people and really touches them. So I'm really thrilled to
0: have it out in the world. Justin Johnson's documentary, Double Digits, The Story of a Neighborhood Movie Star, was made available this week through video on demand. You can watch the trailer and find a link to R.G. Miller's Internet Art Films at azpm.org.
3: The mission has been accomplished.
0: Even before new bars and restaurants began attracting crowds back to Congress Street, music was alive and well in downtown Tucson. Vanessa Barchfield takes us to a new recording studio that was born out of that long legacy and founded by a man who came home to chase his dreams.
5: My name is Stephen Tracy, and I'm the owner and a producer here at St. Cecilia Studios in Tucson, Arizona. Sounds weird. That... Oh, my bad. Play the I got into music, so I made a slew of terrible decisions while I was in high school and dropped out. And I think my dad, in an effort to give me something constructive to do, bought me a guitar. And uh, almost immediately after, I bought an old reel-to-reel tape machine. And for me, playing and writing and recording, all sort of, there, was no, there wasn't a separation with those things. I played in three terrible bands like everybody does when they're 19 years old. And when I moved to Seattle, I started writing with this band called The Myriad. And some labels got interested and we got offered an indie deal. And so we started making records and kind of hit the road and played a couple hundred shows a year and toured all over the place. And that was my job for eight years.
4: Start thinking about moving back to
5: Tucson and why. My My family lives here still, and I remember coming to visit them maybe two or three years ago. And I came down to Congress, which had been mostly a ghost town with the exception of Hotel Congress or Rialto or maybe the Grill. But there wasn't much down here. I remember coming down here and things had just started to sort of populate these different restaurants and coffee shops. And something around that era, just I just kind of thought, man, this is turning into something, and it would be cool to participate in that conversation of what downtown Tucson is going to evolve into. And it didn't take long. A few months later, I had a U-Haul packed and was driving across the country. You know, after spending the last 15 years working in a bunch of studios all over the place, you sort of file away all these experiences, good and bad, you know, like, you you work somewhere and you're like, man, that was amazing, I love how they did this particular thing. And then you have bad experiences where you file it away and things you don't want to recreate. And so this was an opportunity to sort of, from the ground up, create something that was a space where people could be, feel safe and secure to kind of try new things, explore, stuff that they may not have done before. There's two studios here, and so, yeah, right now we're in the control room of Studio A. Studios can often be really, like, technical, and we have gear and stuff here, but that's sort of the afterthought. The intention was to create a space that was inspiring and that you could just sort of, like, hole up for a month and do stuff that you never, that you wouldn't be able to do in a different kind of space. When we when we took the building over, I didn't know at the time, but I had to completely gut it. So it, when we started, it was just dirt floors and four brick walls and kind of had to do everything from scratch, which I'm glad I did once, but I couldn't do it twice. It was horrible. Um, so th- yeah, this is the tracking room of Studio A um, and this is where this is where the artists and musicians spend most of their time. I'm in the other room, there in here.
3: That,
5: that chord right there feels like you're hitting an extra note in the voicing. Sometimes I'm just a guy pushing buttons and running the computer. But maybe 85% of the time I'm producing with the band. So offering feedback, maybe writing with them or pushing them if it can be better um, or being able to offer some outside objective perspective. Cool, yeah. I only heard one section that I had questions about. I'm just wondering if the voicings that you're playing much Saint Cecilia is the patron saint of music. I'm not Catholic, everybody always asks, um, but I love the story behind the legend of Saint Cecilia. She felt that on her wedding night, God had called her to a life of celibacy, which seems like pretty terrible timing. and The reward, God's reward for her, was that she would be given this amazing gift of music and she invented like 30 instruments. And in her mind, she was compelled to do this very extreme thing. And somehow, the consequence of that was this kind of absurd and amazing gift of music. And I mean, there's a cost to music, whether it's somebody who's in the classical world and, you know, practices and trains since they're, you know, a little kid in hopes of being able to do something professionally or a band that practices all the time or hits the road. I mean, there's a cost to it and um, I just like that concept. What's been the cost of music for you? Mm, Well, being gone and touring for so long, the relationships are strange. I mean, you sort of have these really intense moments if you get back from tour and you're there for two or three weeks and um, it's this quick, panicked catch-up of like you're trying to squeeze in a whole bunch of life into this little chunk of time. You know, sometimes it's long hours. Um, There's in a strange time in the music industry where everybody's figuring out what's next, nobody's really making any money, and so the idea of just earning a reasonable middle-class living is a win for so many people right now, and so there's a lot of cost to it, but I can't really imagine doing anything else. Like, this is kind of it. There's not really a plan B. Yes.
0: Nice. That story was produced by Vanessa Barchfield, who thanks the Tucson band M. Crane for letting her record their recording session. The band's first EP should be out in early 2016. Carlos Arzate says one of his earliest connections to music came from singing along to Prince and Rick James on the radio. You can hear that kind of soul in his music today, combined with a social conscience and heartfelt lyrics about the personal politics of life and love. Carlos Arzate visited the AZPM studios to record a private concert in an unusual space for this stairwell session.
3: CXS is the and our glass is old.
0: I was listening to you play Justice in the World. Is that the name of that one?
6: It's called Life, Liberty, Less the Honest. Um, well, I felt
0: like you were carrying on the kind of political promise that folk music made to address issues and, and to be frank in your lyrics.
6: Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear artists of that time or, or like uh, critics of music say that that's dead and that's not around anymore. And I, it just makes me cringe because it is, you know, it's a its a visceral feeling and like a, it's a populist idea to want to sing about what you see as transgressions or injustices or call out things that you know ends that don't meet and we're supposed to just believe and and swallow those things and just speaking about it it's easy easy enough to get marginalized you know and, and shout it out and shout it down but when there's a melody involved it's a it's a little easier to deliver a narrative that's not necessarily cynical but more of a, an account, an accounting of, of our state of affairs.
0: But even when you're talking about social justice and things like that, there's a simplicity to your lyrics that makes me think that you don't have to work that hard to fit them into the song.
6: You know, we're, we're not necessarily creators or originators um, if, as songwriters. I feel like every song has been sang every Melody has been, you know, sang before, written before, in another time. Not even in our modern history of recorded history, or, or or instruments that we have now. Maybe another time, thousands and thousands of years ago. There's a rhythm to the planet, even. And I feel like uh, if we just listen uh, and, we, and we tune in to that vein uh, of that inspiration, then then we become really oracles of it, and we get the benefit. Or I, I personally get the benefit of, of revealing, a narrative. Cyril Barrett said uh, he told me we don't write the songs. I got to show him that song, My Darling Dear, that I wrote for my sister. That I, that came to me when I was, in in a sick place, when I was in a vulnerable place. That song was inspired to me, and I showed it to him, and he he listened to it, and he's like, you didn't write that song, man. He's like that, it's a uh, you, you unveiled it. It, with a smile on his face like we we're smiling because it's true like uh, i like to like to think that i'm just sitting down to create a song but i'm really just hearing uh the notion and unveiling
3: it no, no Until the next time that we meet again, my darling
0: Green singing this, which I told you, yeah, it sounded I could really hear that. That was, I think, that was the "Be a Better Lover" song. Yeah, that's an interesting thing for a man to sing, and a, a good thing. Do you have anything to tell us about where that song came from?
6: You know, relationships. I'm in a long-term relationship. I've been married. We just celebrated our, our 10-year anniversary, and uh, relationships are seasons. We always learn about the the springs and the summers, you know, and everybody wants the spring and the summer, but. There are also, there's also the fall and the winter, you know, and there's also, there's adversity in relationships, and it takes work to be successful, and it, you know, and, and you know, you want to have a, the majority of that time spent together. It feels like the spring and the summer, but there's, I'm referencing the work that it takes and the acknowledgement that it takes to be a better a better listener, a better caretaker, you know, not just like, oh, don't complain. Let's just be happy, you know. Like, there's no room for that. But we're living in a we're living in tough times where it's a lot easier to hate today than it is to love. It's a lot easier to discard and tear down things than to build them. And it's, so, it's really important to to try to <laughs> train yourself to be uh, cognizant of those things, you know.
0: A man for all seasons. Carlos Orzate and his band, The Kind Souls, have just released a new album called Got Me Wrong. This stairwell session was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood with assistance from Jameson Waddell. You can listen to the complete set at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios, The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.